Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? It's good to have children's ministry going again. I have forgot the excitement of having my kids here with me and wanting to run around during the service and not trusting the Sunday school teacher, therefore not staying in Sunday school. And so it's, it's great to look over and to see them back uh, this morning. We're going we're gonna to read Genesis 3. One, in fact, we're going to read all of Genesis 3. So if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me, we're going to read this whole chapter. I'll be reading out of the CSB this morning. Starting in verse 1, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then their eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains and you will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made clothings from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove them out and stationed an angel with a flaming and whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. God, 
God, I uh, pray this morning that you help me make sense of what is such a dark story. I pray that my, my words are clear, that what comes out of my mouth is, is pleasing to you, Lord. I pray that you teach us as a church how to grow and mature in understanding the gospel, Father. Build a foundation for us to continue to reach this community with, Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this is such an amazing story. And and there's a reason that this story happens at the beginning of the Bible. The whole Bible is focused on the coming of Christ. The Old Testament is focused on leading up to the coming of Christ. The New Testament starts out focusing on the birth and the life and the death of Christ. And then the New Testament, it transitions to focusing on the importance of believers believing in Christ. And so what happens in this Bible is so vital to the coming of Christ because what happens in this story is the reason that Christ has to come. So this whole series that we are in, Gospel Foundations, it's, it's focused on providing a, a foundation for understanding the gospel throughout the Bible. The gospel is the good news of Christ. And so the main point that I'm going to try to make today, though I think I'm going to make a lot of points, um, the main point that I'm going to try to make today is that God in His plan is good. God in His plan is good. And when we sin... We are denying God's goodness. We are denying God's goodness. Right? So before we, we look at the story that I just want to go through with you guys today, verse by verse, before we do that, let's talk about the characters that are in this story. I, I know that most of us are very familiar with this passage in this chapter, but I think it's good to uh, revisit uh, who is in this story since we didn't read chapters 1 through too. And so the first, the first being in this story is God, right? God is the creator. God is the maker of everything. Just a little Christianity 101, there is one God expressed in three persons. So in the beginning was not just God the Father, but it was God Jesus. It was God the Holy Spirit. We'll see that here in a little bit when I cover a verse. And so this Trinitarian God who just in the first two chapters of Genesis designed the universe and everything in it. That's what happened in Genesis 1 and 2. And not only did God design it, but he designed it good, right? God created light and it was good. God created vegetation and it was good. God created creatures and they were good. And this is important because a God that creates good things most likely is a good God, right? And another way that the Bible communicates God's goodness, besides just laying it out in the beginning with Him creating good things, is by the names that we see that God has. And so if you were to journey through the rest of the Scriptures, you would see God being called certain names. And I'll just read a few for you. The Lord my shepherd. The Lord that heals the Lord our righteousness, the Lord who sanctifies you, the Lord will provide, the Lord is peace. These are some of the names in the Old Testament. When you go into the New Testament, you see God being called Father, 
Savior, Truth, Comforter, Wonderful Counselor, Lord of Lords, and so many other names, but, but basically these names describe a God that is good, right? A God that creates good things. And in contrast, let's look at one of the other characters in this story. Satan, or the, the serpent as he appears here. He is a creation of God, originally created good, but decided to rebel against God, right? At one time he served him, but now he doesn't. You find that out later throughout the Bible. And just like God, he has many names in the Scriptures, and those names reveal his character. And so let's look at a couple of those names. Evil One, Tempter, the devil, which means slander, enemy, liar, lord of flies. That's not a good thing to be a lord of. Lord of lords opposed to lord of flies. And so again, you could assume that the character of Satan by the names that he is given, right? And then finally, the, the third being, the, the third player in this story is mankind, Adam and Eve, right? God's prize creation. Right? Being put here on earth to dwell in God's company and to rule over his creation with him. God created all of the beings, all of the beings, right? Everything that's living. But the major distinction between man and all of the other crea creators or creatures, I'm sorry, is that man is made in the image of God. Right? Man is made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says, Then God said, Let us... There's that Trinitarian language, let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, that they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female, in his image. So, so God created male and female in the image of God. He breathed life in their nostrils, and they were formed. And, and so now, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole really quick, and I'm going to take you with me. I don't know if there's any animal lovers in here. Um, I am uh, pretty excited because I finally convinced my wife to let me get a dog. I have been wanting a dog for a long time, and so now I'm on a waiting list for a golden retriever. I grew up with a dog in the house. My wife did not grow up with pets, I think she might have had a, a gerbil or something, but I don't think that counts. Um, and so I am really looking forward uh, to having a dog. And, and I am sure once we get over the puppy experience, right, that the howling in the middle of the night that keeps us up, uh, the poop on the floor that my young son is crawling around trying to eat, once we get through that, I'm sure we're going to love this dog, right? The dog is going to feel like it's part of the family. We will value and we will love the dog, right? But no matter how good this dog is or how much we love this dog, it will not come close to being at the same worth as my kids, right? There's not, it's not just because I won't value the dog as much as my children. It's not just because of the way I'll view it, though I won't value the dog as much as my children, but it's because God, the creator of everything who made mankind in his image, designed people inherently more precious, more valuable, more important than any other creature on the earth. And that's 
that someone who is suffering from all types of illness and that can barely get out of bed to the fetus in the womb, who has contributed nothing to society, they are still more valuable than the greatest animal on the planet. As Christians, we recognize the value of humans because they are made in the image of God. And that also means that any person or people that you disagree with, right, that, that, that person that just makes your skin crawl, maybe it's someone you work with, maybe it's someone online, every time they post, you're just like, ah, which makes you wonder why do you still friend them? Right? Maybe it's a presidential candidate. I, I don't know, right? But, but, but they are made in the image of God, therefore they are of intrinsic value and worth regardless of how you feel about them. So that, that's mankind. That's us. That's where we are in this story. God, God's image bearer designed to be in relationship with God, given the task to multiply, fill the earth, and rule over it. All right, so there are the players. So let's look at the story. Verse 1, Satan, the serpent. Did God really say? Did God really say? Satan doesn't come out and say, hey, Eve, God is a liar. I got a better way for you. No, he's too cunning for that, right? He starts with a subtle question that creates a seed of doubt inside of her. Did God really say? How many of you have heard that question before in your life? I know I have. I hear it all the time. Hey, Matt, did God really say? Hey, Matt, is this what God meant? Hey, Matt, will living this way really bring you happiness? Don't you deserve better? How many broken marriages and affairs have started with that subtle question of, don't you deserve better? It's a subtle question, and it promotes doubt, and it causes you to question God's goodness. Up to this point, there had been no question about God's goodness from Adam and Eve. Why would they? I mean, they got to run around naked all day in a beautiful place with the command to multiply it and fill it And the only thing that they couldn't do was eat from one tree in the garden. That sounds pretty good to me. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good life. Why would you question God's goodness if that was your life? But Satan, and Satan, once he produces the doubt about God's goodness, regardless of how good their life is, he he, he doesn't. He doesn't leave it there, right? Satan starts with a doubt, but, but Satan's goal is what? It's death and destruction. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So, so while Eve is second-guessing the trust in God, the lie is spoken in verse 4, and Satan says, no, Eve, you won't die. In fact, not only will you not die, but you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the progression is, did God really say, planting the seed of doubt, to God is not good, which is the lie. The lie that leads all of us to sin. And remember, up to this point, there had been no evil, there had been no corruption, there had been no enemies, there had been no devastation, there had been no death, there had been no sin, there had been no reason to doubt God's goodness. But with that doubt... Based with the lie in Eve's mind, in verse 6, it says she sees the fruit and looks good and it's desirable, and so she eats it. 
And so Eve decided that that lie was good, meaning that God was not. Her desire, her self-interest seemed better than God's interest and God's desire. Again, sin is a choice to believe that God is not good. When we sin, we disobey God. We are denying God's good plan for our life. Instead of choosing a, a life that He has called us to, we choose the path of self-betterment. We are deciding that what we want, what we desire is a better way to live than what God desires for us. The Bible calls that self-idolatry. And it's at the root of every sin. It is an attempt to put ourselves on the same level as God. Satan told Eve, you will be like God. The temptation to have a better life than the one that God has given them led Eve to sin. So Eve eats the fruit and, and no one wants to sin alone, right? So she offers some to Adam. I don't know what he was doing up to this point. Um, just watching the conversation happen. Was he just passively standing by while Eve brings death to the entire world? I don't have a clue, um, but obviously Satan's doubt and lies were convincing enough for Adam, and so he took the fruit and he ate it also. And then what we see right away in verse 7 is their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked, and so they closed themselves. Right, so previously, chapter 2, it says that they were naked and unashamed, which symbolizes being innocent. Right? But now they're naked and full of shame, right? which what we see is shame the first consequence of sin. Right? What, they, what they didn't do is eat the fruit and be like, man, that fruit was good. Satan was right. They didn't go out and try to find God and be like, God, I don't know why you were holding back on us. This was amazing fruit, and we are now like you. That's not at all what happened, is it? No, they realize they're naked, they're full of shame, and they go and they hide from God. The life that they were promised, the, the, the lie of a, a better way, was immediately realized that, that it was a lie and, and they were let down. We know that we can enjoy sin when we are in the midst of it, but ultimately it lets you down. Right? I, you know that quote, it's been, it's been quoted to a number of a number of people, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Right? This is why in verse 8, they hear God coming and they hide from Him because they are ashamed of what they've done. Right? But God is not scared of our sin. Right? God's not scared of their sin. He knows what they've done. A lie that Satan tries to tell us, uh, church, when we sin is, is that God doesn't want to be around us, that we are dirty, that we are tainted. That God is clean, and now we are not, and so we need to hide from God. We need to, we need to actually try to redeem ourselves on our own, right? We, we, we try to work through a sin on our own before we'll go back to church and approach God or before we'll go and pray with Him because we feel dirty. God's not scared of our sin, just like He wasn't scared of Adam and Eve's sin. He comes and He finds them. He seeks Adam out. And he could have easily himself hid from them, right? God could have gave the same consequences without talking to them to their face. He could have avoided them. In fact, even in the process of giving the consequences and rebuking Adam and Eve, you'll see him care for them. So God finds Adam and Eve and he calls them out. Adam completely uh, 
loses his man card here, right? Because his response in verse 12 is, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, right? Which is not just deflecting blame to the woman, but, but it's actually blaming God, isn't it? Like the woman you gave me, God, your partner, you chose her for me, it's your fault. You picked this partner. It's pretty bold. And then Eve also, full of shame, deflects the, deflects the blame, right? As, as she looks towards the serpent and says that the serpent deceived me. And so now what we go into is the consequences, right? These consequences that won't just affect Adam and Eve, but it'll affect every single being and person coming out after them. And so, and so we're going to skip over Satan's consequences. We're going to come back to them. But let's look at the woman's first in verse 15. The woman will experience labor pains. So even though the blessing of birth is not taken away, right, it's tainted with massive pains. The woman's also cursed with relationship issues with her husband. The desire for woman will be for your husband and he will rule over her. Right, this is a highly debated passage. I just want to point that out. But there will be tension between the sexes that did not previously exist. There'll be a relationship, right? There was a relationship with Adam and Eve that was pure. It was loving. It was perfect beyond just the privilege to run around naked everywhere, right? There was a perfect partnership that is now much harder to achieve. So what we see is that the woman will tend to make idols out of men and that men will tend to oppress women. And then the curse for the man He'll now experience pain in his work. So the creation that the man was called to work and, and subdue, it will now be tiring, it will be laborsome, it will be hard. Verse 19, you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until, the return, until you return to the ground. So men, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to work hard to provide, and in the end, you are still going to die. You can't take it with you. For you are dust and you will return to dust. And I think it's important to note, church, that the consequences are distorting gender roles. Gender roles are not part of the curse, but the ability to enjoy these roles rightly is much harder to achieve now. Giving birth is not a part of the consequence of sin. But, but a woman, right, but women were designed with a special role to nurture young children in a way that men physically cannot do. Regardless of what kind of surgery you have, or what the world tells you, men cannot physically nurture a young child like a woman was designed and born to do. Men were designed to work. There is, there is not a, 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 this is not a result of the fall. It's, it's now harder to enjoy. And in the end, after all the years of working, saving, building, retirement, right, we still die. But men were desired to, to work and provide from the beginning. And, of course, they're sharing responsibilities within the roles, right? Of course there's that. But in a society that wants to convince our children that gender is fluid, I think it's important that we're able to look to Scriptures and recognize that there are some differences between men and women that actually complement each other. Let's look at the third, the third, the other character getting his consequence, Satan. But, but now in the midst of... Uh, these consequences. He actually starts with this one, which is interesting in verse 15, talking to Satan. And it's the glimmer of hope that we get in this broken story, right? 
Uh, first, he, he curses the, the snake, which I always kind of feel bad for. Like they get a bad rap, right? Like snakes are forever now slithering on their stomach eating dust. And it's like, man, the snake just got possessed by Satan. It wasn't his fault, right? But either way, they're cursed. But God says to Satan, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. There will be war between mankind and Satan. That's what I believe this is saying. There will be a constant struggle for image bearers of God who are trying to reunite with their creator, trying to find their purpose in this world, trying to understand why they exist. Satan will always be trying to plant doubt and lies about the nature and the existence of God, doing everything they can to convince them that there is a better way than God's way. He will use things that we see as pleasurable and desirable to draw our attention away from God. Mankind who is now born in a broken world without knowing God, without being born with the innocence that Adam and Eve had, right, will now be born in a spiritual war. Usually unknowing that there is a tempter, a liar, an evil one doing everything that he can to keep you from trusting in God's existence. Church, this is a massive consequence. It's a massive consequence. Satan, who is also referred to as the Lord of this age, is given the ability to run around deceiving and confusing God's image bearers. So God, knowing the impossibility, right? God, knowing the impossibility of man finding him in these circumstances. I mean, Satan convinced Adam and Eve, who were in a perfect place, who had no excuse to sin, everything was good, and yet the fact that they gave it all up for a bite of fruit, it speaks to the power of sin, does it? It speaks to the power of sin. And God, knowing the impossibility of man being able to be obedient to God again, now in this broken world, against such a mighty deceiver, God provides hope. God provides hope. And so in verse 15, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. There's so much in this. There's so much in that phrase right there. God says, Satan, you may hurt mankind. You may deceive some. You may put my son on the cross. You may bring destruction to many. But ultimately, the seed from this woman will crush your head. In the end, Satan, you will lose and I will win. I will not abandon my creation. I will not leave them alone in a broken world without hope. I will provide a way out. I will have a relationship with my people. I will make clear their purpose and calling. I will give them eternal life. In the midst of everything being torn apart, the perfect garden, the perfect relationship, the perfect life, God says, I will give it back and restore what has been lost. I will not allow the story to end this way. It's only beginning. I will send my son, Jesus Christ, who has been with me from the beginning to be born a man, and he will be perfect, never knowing evil, never sinning, completely obedient to my plan and calling. He will do what Adam was unable to do, and he will withstand your doubt. He will withstand your lies. And though he will be innocent, he will carry the ultimate sacrifice for Adam and Eve's sins and for the sins of the world. Providing a way for my image bearers to once again know me. All that, all that is packed in right there. All that is packed into he will strike your head. So church, this is uh, important for us to hear that, that God still has a good plan. This is, this is where we want to end it today. God still has a good plan. If the worship team can go ahead and come up.
In fact, in verse 21, it's, it's, the, last, it's the last verse I want to I point to, right? It's, like, it's kind of it's, it's so bittersweet. God is sending Adam and Eve out of the garden, right? He's, he's guarding the garden with one of his angels so they can't get back in and they can't have eternal life. In verse 21, it says, The Lord made clothings from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. It makes you wonder what kind of disappointment did God have in this moment, you know, as he's seeing his, his perfect creation rebel against him, give up everything that God had made for them, and yet before he sends them out, he, he stops and he makes clothes for them. God still chooses to provide and to be what his character is, which is good. Maybe you're here today and you are struggling with God's goodness. I know that when doubt is planted in my life and I allow that doubt to marinate and I start looking around and I allow the desires and the pleasures that the world has to offer, I start questioning the life that God has called me to live. Can I just slip on this commandment? Can I just go this way? Right? It seems like this will bring me a little bit more happiness than this way. And you start doubting that trust that God is good, and you don't even realize you're doing it. You just get caught up in it. And maybe that's where you are right now. You're wrestling with that in your life. And I just want to remind you that even in the midst of, you know, next to Jesus dying on the cross, the worst sin that has ever happened in our world that brought destruction to the entire universe, right, that now brought death to every living being in the midst of that, God unleashes his plan for redemption. And that's beautiful because he's a good God. Maybe right now you're dealing with shame. Right? Maybe, maybe, maybe you've, you've sinned, maybe you, you've been in sin, and, and you just struggle talking to God. Right? You, you struggle going back to him. You feel dirty, you feel unworthy, right? you, feel, you don't feel good enough. Right? Maybe that's where you are this morning. And, and I just want to remind you that the reason you're here is because God is seeking you out right now. Like, He sees you. He's not worried about your sin. He's not scared of your sin. Right? He's not bothered by it. He just loves you and He wants to bring you back in relationship with Him. And so I encourage you as you go out this morning and whatever time you have left, if you're dealing with anything, if anything that, was, that, that I said this morning has sparked something inside of you that you deal with it. You can deal with it where you are. You can come to the, come to the altar and pray. Whatever you need to do to, to, to see God again and to come back into that perfect relationship that He now offers you, I encourage you to do so. Let's pray. God, we thank You for such a horrible story that reveals so much goodness and hope. And God, as, just, as we continue through the Scriptures as a church, Lord, I just pray that You bring us together, You unite us in the message You want us to hear. Lord, let us grow individually. Let us grow as families, Father, that understand Your Word and You better, Father. Let us fall deeper in love with You as a church and let that love spread out into the community, God. We love You and we thank You for the beautiful hope and goodness that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we-
we sing this last song. Streams of mercy.